BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. There's so many cool newfangled tools in neuroscience these days that it's often hard to imagine how something as simple as a microscope and a graphite pencil might have led someone to win the Nobel Prize. Of course, it's not that simple, but it's easy to get lost with all of this new technology. And now there's been a lot of controversy, as I'm sure a lot of you already know, about different kinds of tools and how they're used. For example, there's work coming out showing that functional neuroimaging, like fMRI, really isn't as stable or reproducible as we might want it to be or think it is. So that's why I thought it might be fun to take a deeper dive into the life of someone who used just his drawing tools and a microscope to overturn the doctrine of the time of how the brain is built. Look up the hippocampus, my favorite brain region, on Wikipedia, and you'll find that the images that accompany it are still drawn over 100 years ago by Santiago Ramon y Cajal. For someone who won the Nobel Prize and basically is considered the father of modern neuroscience, who overturned the idea that the brain is just a tangle of wires, and instead focused on the fact that it's made up of individual discrete cells we call neurons, it's amazing to think that there hasn't yet been a complete biography. And that's where Benjamin Ehrlich comes in. He's recently published a book called The Brain in Search of Itself, Santiago Ramonica Hall and the Story of the Neuron, in which he tracks in intricate detail the life of the man who changed the way we think about the brain. Benjamin Ehrlich, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Santiago Ramon y Cajal is often called the father of neuroscience or, you know, sort of the inventor of modern neuroscience. And yet I think a lot of people have never heard of him. So what got you interested in the topic and, you know, started this deep dive into his life? Well, it was a profoundly personal experience. I, this was about 12 years ago. 
I was depressed and a friend of mine sent me an image of his drawing of a brain cell. And I just had this kind of awakening. I, I saw a path forward to study his life and work and I sort of let it lead me out of this darker time. And I followed that instinct all the way to the book all these years later. Wow. You know, I think I think uh, for anyone who has an artistic inclination, which actually includes most scientists that I know, one of the things that really strikes us is just how beautiful his drawings were. Um, so, you know, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of like, why is he called the father of neuroscience? What, what did these drawings contribute to the foundation of the field? Well, at that time, the leading visualization technique was called histology, which is when you dissect animal tissue or any tissue and stain it with chemicals whose precipitate, when, when they react with each other, they leave precipitates on the architecture of the cell that you can see through a light microscope. And because in the beginning and middle of Cajal's career, there were no photo microscopes, you had to draw your slides in order to disseminate them. So to publish them or anything else, you had to be kind of a skilled draftsman. And what Cajal did was overturn the theory at the time, which was that the brain is a, a singular convoluted network of fibers with no spaces in between them. And Cajal discovered that nerve cells are independent and they must um, communicate across infinitesimal gaps that later were termed synapses. And that is how we think about the organization of the brain today. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point that, you know, prior to his work, people really thought of, yeah, the brain as this tangled set of wires or fibers. And then when he demonstrated that it's actually made up of cells, just like every other organ in the body, just like every other part of the body, that really, I think, changed how people think about the brain. In some ways, like, it seems to me like it would make it feel less special if it's like all these other cells. And yet, I feel like Cajal's drawings, they're so beautiful and they just display how special those cells are, how different they are and how beautiful. Right. And there's a there's kind of a long history of misunderstandings about the brain. You know, the Egyptians used to mummify corpses and would churn the brain up through the nostrils with a long rod and let it seep out onto the desert floor because they thought that the heart was the home of the soul and that you needed a heart in the afterlife. So it was, you know, Hippocrates who first said, you know, men ought to know that from the brain arises all of the mental states. That's so, I've sort of paraphrased what he said. And then there's a sort of a legacy of investigators who treated the brain as a special organ. But like you said, the, the sort of paradox is that it's at once like every other organ in the body because it's made up of cells. And on the other hand, it's highly, 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 highly specialized because of what those cells can do. So I want to talk a little bit about Santiago's early childhood, because uh, one of the things that really surprised me in reading your book um, is that he had a terrible childhood. And I don't know how atypical that was for the time or the place, but the amount of abuse he seemed to have suffered just really kind of made my stomach turn. So tell me a little bit about, you know, th those early days and, and sort of how it made him the man that he became. Yeah, well, he was born in this tiny village on a mountaintop in northern Spain, the most remote region of the country, in a community that was probably around 90% illiterate. But his father was an aspiring doctor, very enterprising, and wanted Cajal to follow in his footsteps into medicine, but Cajal wanted to be an artist. And so from both his teachers and his father, he received physical abuse, which 
you know, you asked how common it was, and I think it was more common than it should have been, obviously, because the the motto of Spanish educa- the education system was la letra con sangre ancho, which means knowledge comes with blood. So he was imprisoned and beaten and starved, and he sort of hints at that in his autobiography without going into it completely, because I believe he was traumatized by it. And I don't know how it made him the man he was. I think that when he studies degeneration of nerves in the sort of middle of his career, you can see a sensitivity to what the nerve fibers were going through as after injuring the nervous system, he was charting how they were efforting to regenerate. And he personifies the nerve fibers a lot. And it seems as though he was maybe projecting his own journey after being abused. You know, you talk about um, how in those early days, as you mentioned, he really wanted to be an artist. And in fact, he kept kind of defying his father. And one story that stuck out to me is when his father, to punish him, forced him to work with a shoemaker. You know, Cajal turned it around and became a, a kind of artisanal shoemaker who took pride in his work. And even when his father came back to take him home, he was like, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to stay. Yeah, like one of the qualities that I think is essential to his character is like he was irrepressible. He had this desire to to create and to excel that couldn't be tamed. His father thought of education as as a taming process, but Cajal couldn't be tamed. I mean, of course, he ended up studying anatomy like his father, but he went into it because he wanted to draw the body. It wasn't to become a surgeon or to practice medicine at all. So he he never lost his his dream of becoming an artist. And as you say, his drawings now, they've actually been shown in a a bunch of museums because people are starting to realize their artistic merit. I mean, to me, it's almost like, you know, that that contribution, you know, I mean, it doesn't, I wouldn't say it takes the place of his his other contributions, but I feel like that's what he's become most famous for is the Cajal, you know, drawings of, of neurons, which, you know, that's, you go to Wikipedia and you look at, you know, what is the, what is, what does a structure look like? And almost certainly you're going to have some drawing from Cajal <laughs> of its cellular bits. It's amazing because for all the imaging techniques that we have now with supercomputers and electron microscopes, you still open any neuroanatomy textbook and there's Cajal's neuron. He was able to essentialize the neuron in a way that was complete for its time. And, and none of the ways that he depicted it have been sort of superseded despite the technology of today. So tell me a little bit about what happened. What was the instigating thing that led Cajal to turn maybe away from his art and towards medicine? And you kind of hinted that at that already. But what, you know, what was the... What was the turning point? Well, there was a war. Um, so, you know, Spanish uh, history in the 19th century, there were, I don't remember the number of civil wars and governments and, and, and royals, but there was a war close by to where he lived. And his father was called upon to treat the, the soldiers. It was the queen's soldiers versus the rebels. And Cajal saw a dead body for the first time and started to think that that was perhaps the best subject for his drawings. And so he, he really only, he had no other aspiration than to draw the insides of the human body. And as I said, he, he excelled at drawing anatomy and he followed in a, an illustrious path and includes Leonardo da Vinci who did the same thing. It was called descriptive anatomy because essentially you were, you were expressing what the inside of the body looked like through art and drawing. And you even hint that his father, Justo, 
wanted him to see these corpses because he thought it would make him more serious, make him turn away from this frivolous art. And I think it, the irony, of course, is that it made him lean in <laughs> to, to the art and, and go further into that direction. He had an extremely complicated relationship with his father. You, you'd have to say that his father knew him better than anyone else. So again, like you're saying, he, he thought that because Cajal was adventurous and liked drama and war and fantasized about battle, that seeing a dead body would sort of force him to want to become a surgeon. And his father even expressed that a surgeon was like a general who had to see the battlefield of the body and all these analogies, but they didn't work. Um, Cajal entered into the field with his own intentions. So what happened next? He, he entered into medicine. Tell us the sort of next stage in the story. I should say that first he fought in a war, which is one of the most interesting episodes in his, in his history. After, after completing college, there was a campaign, a Spanish campaign in, in their, to repress the rebellion in one of their colonies of Cuba. And Cajal went over there as a, an army physician and nearly died of malaria and dysentery. And that kind of disabused him of his more romantic, adventurous, warlike ideals because he nearly died. And then he, you know, got on the path to becoming a professor, which meant these competitive examinations called oppositiones. And in the course of studying for one of those, he went to a laboratory in Madrid and he observed histology, that process I explained before. And because it was so colorful and so vivid, he fell in love bought his own microscope with his military back pay and started to do experiments in his attic, in the attic of his parents' house at first. And, you know, as he became more and more into it, he noticed that the only organ that wasn't well described in all of the literature was the brain. And then the brain became this kind of convergence of an anatomical subject that needed to be clarified and this like secret of our humanity, as most scientists believe and most, most scientists still believe that somehow the brain gives rise to our experience of life. Yeah. So what do you think made then, you know, beyond his, I mean, I can imagine that you would have a a parallel track in which someone who's interested in art um, now discovers that there aren't a lot of great anatomical drawings of the brain and that, you know, their influence ends there. What was it, do you think, about, you know, his work that led him to all these other discoveries? And maybe you could describe some of them, too. Sure. So he was a deeply patriotic person. He was patriotic in a way that I don't know exist. Like it, it, was, it took a lot for me to try to understand what, what that meant to him. He wanted to be the Don Quixote of Spanish science, like without the disillusionment at the end of the book, I guess. <laughs> um, so he really wanted to elevate Spanish culture because Spain didn't have a reputation of science. It was, if you look at the statues of Spanish heroes, it's mostly like warriors, kings, philosophers, and artists. And internationally, he was, there was a lot of bias against Spanish science and Spaniards. They were seen as exotic and not serious. He wanted to be the standard bearer of this new tradition. And the best way to establish Spanish science was, he saw, to overturn this view of the brain as what, what was called a reticulum, like we described before, that network of fibers. And... That was his major breakthrough discovery. And he went on to describe, you know, once, once he dis, dis, described the brain as full of cells, he went to different areas of the brain and, and proved it there. Um, the cerebellum, the retina, the cortex, all over. Um, so that was the sort of first phase of his career was sort of almost like someone planting a flag of, the, of what was called the neuron doctrine in these different areas of the brain. 
And then he turned his attention to the regeneration and degeneration of nerve fibers. So intentionally injuring specimens and then killing them and then using histology to image their tissue to see how far the neurons' fibers were getting in terms of their reaching back to their old connections. So those were the two major areas of his research. So what do you think ultimately led to people to you know, accept his work, given what you were describing as a bias against Spanish science? Well, he literally used all of his savings and traveled to Berlin where there was an anatomical society meeting. And it, it was the power of his evidence. Like he managed to motion over one of the leading anatomists of the day who was persuaded by the brilliance and the clarity of Cajal's histological slide. Once he looked through the microscope, he couldn't deny it. And then, you know, it seemed to make some intuitive... I mean, there was still a, a persistent reticularist controversy, but it, it seemed intuitive that the brain would be composed of cells. After a while, people accepted that, that it only made sense. It was the sort of last, the last frontier of cell theory, which was postulated in the 1830s. So it was like, would all life be created, uh, be composed of cells except for this one organ? It doesn't, it makes a little bit more sense if it was truly universal. And, and now that we look back, I mean, it seems so obvious. And I think that's one of the, one of the reasons why it's easy to kind of diminish the, the sort of just novelty of his discovery. But it also reminds me of another uh, Spanish-speaking scientist uh, from Brazil this time, Susana Hercolano Huzel, who was the first to question the fact that we have 100 billion neurons in the brain. So she, you know, she, we would read this, te- this number in the textbooks all the time. And she, you know, was like, well, has anybody counted them? <laughs> Does anybody <laughs> actually know? And uh, in her lab, they devised essentially a way of counting cells in a brain by kind of creating, by, by turning the brain into a soup and then using a centrifuge to kind of like figure out what all the parts are and then like, you know, count the number of cells. And, and it turns out that there are only about 86 billion neurons in the brain in most, in the average human. And that's significant because it's not more than would be predicted for a primate of our size. So it's sort of like, she, you know, she came up and, and so, the, and now so the na- number amongst neuroscientists has been revised. And, but it, it strikes me as, as similar to, to Cajal's story, although, you know, a hundred years or, you know, later, but it, it made me wonder, like, in Cajal's time, there were microscopes, like, why hadn't someone else already done that? There's like a groupthink that happens probably throughout science and in other areas as well where, so the brain was difficult to visualize because it's so dense with fibers, like the stains that they had available would stain everything and you just see a solid block of color. You wouldn't be able to distinguish one fiber from another. And Cajal made these technical advances where he took this existing state called the black reaction that his rival invented and he tinkered with it until he was able to separate visually one fiber from another so it was really like the skepticism of the of the group think and then the technical innovation to the stain and then the persistence of wanting to triumph which he had a deep desire to do I mean, in, in that way, you know, he is like the main character in a Spanish adventure glory story. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, you know, he, yeah, and you describe how like so often and in, in the in the photographs that that you haven't, like say on the cover of, of, of his book, of the, of the book, he just looks alone and sad. And, you know, like there's this kind of sense that, this is his life's work and he has to toil away by himself in a small room to do it. 
I don't know. It's just, it, it seems to me like maybe there is this kind of influence of um, a, a, a Spanish literary tradition of the, the, the sole lonely conquering hero. Yeah, absolutely. That he he sort of embodied the romantic view of science, like you said, the soul of explorer. That you know, he was deeply imaginative, and I think that he he talks early in his career about seeing this experiment with the mesentery of a frog and imagining that the cells were prisoners escaping through the wall of the capillary. And I think that he was able to engage himself for long hours because it. Ta- I mean. He, he probably looked at, at cell tissue for, you know, some number of hours every day for 50 years. And to do that, you have to be deeply engaged and you have to love it. And I think his love of science was maybe his deepest quality. Tell me a little bit about sort of his mid to late career and when science started to love him back. Yeah, well, he he started winning prizes in this in the 1890s and achieving recognition within Spain and uh you know, bought a second home and and you know, started he had lived in in sort of self-imposed poverty for many years in order to spend as much money on his laboratory equipment as he could. Then he won the Nobel Prize in 1906, which was a huge which was just a huge deal. Um, yeah, it still yeah. is. <laughs> it still is a huge deal. Yeah. Um, but anyone who didn't know about him learned about him then. And, you know, at that point, he shared the prize with Golgi, the discoverer of the black reaction that I mentioned, who was still a reticularist as opposed to a neuron, neuronist. So he had to use that platform Cajal did to, to defeat reticularism once again. So a lot of his, his career was he would like receive these attacks on neuronism, and he'd have to defend them with more and more novel research. And then, you know, he was he was working on the degeneration, regeneration of neurons, and then World War One hit that really, it really knocked him out, um, devastated him and his output decreased, you know, greatly. And then when the war ended, he he started to feel the effects of aging, he had a, a condition that caused migraine, serious migraines, and he was unable to to work as much. So it was really the the defense what I think he's best known for is the not only the postulation of the brain as being composed of cells but the like staunch defense of neuronism for like decades that he was having to deal with um assaults. I mean it you know it it's just so ironic now because I don't think that you would meet a single neuroscientist who wouldn't <laughs> Who, who, you know, like the neuron doctrine, it's like learning the alphabet. Like if before you can talk, you understand neurons and the synapse and how they communicate with each other. It's like the most basic 101 of like biological psychology. It is interesting, though, that um, the reticular theory has made a comeback, though, though not in the anatomical sense. Like nobody, there, there are some neurons that are connected. It's like highly irregular, but people start are thinking about the brain in terms of systems theory and like parts of the brain communicating with other parts of the brain. So in terms of their connectivity, they can be thought as continuous, which is what the reticular theory thought that the anatomy of the brain was. So it's like a non-anatomical continuity that some people will use to describe the brain now. You're exactly right. In fact, that's like the 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 hot topic in sort of cognitive neuroscience now is to talk about 
uh, resting state connectivity or the default mode network, like how these networks of neurons are active in uh, synchronous ways or in specific ways, like either in different people or during different kind of mental states. Um, and so it is a return back to thinking, to diminishing the influence of a single cell and going more towards this connectivity view, but from a functional perspective, not a neuroanatomical one. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about what that Nobel Prize acceptance speech must have been like between Golgi and and uh, and Cajal, because I just think the irony of of Cajal winning the Nobel Prize for using the stain that Golgi developed to prove Golgi wrong. <laughs> I just think that's so fascinating. Yeah, it was it was tense between the two of them. They hadn't met until that point. Cajal tried to meet him when he traveled one time and Golgi was at his country house. And then he tried to meet him when Golgi got off the train to Stockholm, but Golgi kind of rushed past him. And Golgi was the one who spoke first and he just proposed the reticular theory as though nothing had happened in the last you know <laughs> 20 years. And so Cajal was forced to use his speech to reaffirm the observations that he had made over the last 20 years. And there were all these eyewitness accounts of how awkward it was. And it was a, it was a fun anecdote to write about because Cajal, who was born in this tiny village, like I mentioned, suddenly being in this luxurious hotel in Stockholm, and then the drama between the two scientists, it's, it's one of the best scientific rivalries in history that people usually say. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh, it's great, and you, you write about it brilliantly. So I want to um, let our listeners know that um, Benjamin's book, "The Brain in Search of Itself: Santiago Ramon y Cajal and the Story of the Neuron," is available at booksellers everywhere. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the second way that I think uh, Cajal was prescient, uh, and and as you mentioned in the second half of his career, talking about neural regeneration. Um, and then there was a period of time after he died that the idea of like the brain, especially being able to have any kind of regenerative capacity, was really set aside. And it wasn't until the last couple of decades that the term neuroplasticity, you know, gained more mainstream attention. It's this idea that the brain is malleable, that it can change even from the neuroanatomical perspective, almost to the point now that it's gone in, in too much in that direction, that people think the brain is infinitely malleable, which it is not. There are biological limitations. So tell me a little bit about like, you know, that part of his work, which I was less familiar with, and sort of what happened after he left the scene that caused, um, you know, that doctrine to fall out of favor. Well, he was probably the person, the first person who popularized the term plasticity. It had, it had been used by other researchers and William James. And, you know, Cajal called it cerebral gymnastics. <laughs> there was this problem of, for example, if we learn as human beings, then that would have to be re reflected in our brains. And if our brains couldn't change or, re you know, reorganize, then how would we be exhibiting different behaviors? So that was the question about what, how would learning be reflected in the brain that Cajal addressed with his, with his research and his popularization of plasticity. But regeneration in the central nervous system, he thought was not possible, but he did say, I leave it up to future generations to prove me wrong. So I, I have run into a few people that criticized Cajal for, you know, there was, he put a kind of damp, he dampened the enthusiasm about researching that topic, but really he just said, like, I came to the end of my uh, 
of my abilities to research this and someone else is going to have to take it from here. Yeah. And I think in some ways that little caveat is important because I think now, you know, there is this, as I mentioned, um, this overhyping of just how plastic and malleable our brains are, you know, without understanding that there's actually a huge benefit to a brain that is not that malleable because it can store information for long periods of time, right? It can store experiences and you know, we don't, you don't have to have a traumatic experience repeated uh, because you remember it and your brain remembers at all these different levels. Right. That's a great point. I, I want to uh, then just talk a little bit about sort of where we are today. And like, do you feel like I, I almost, and maybe this is just because sometimes I think it's because of Wikipedia and because his drawings now are there um, for everyone to see, but do you feel like there's a kind of re-emergence of the influence of Cajal that has come about as you've been writing this book? Or is that just my own subjective view? Well, as we were talking about, the emphasis on individual neurons has diminished. So in that sense, Cajal's findings are not as foundational as they as they had been. But I think the spirit of Cajal continues to animate a lot of neuroscience projects throughout the world. Like I mean, this is a hugely controversial one, but the Human Brain Project based in Switzerland cited Cajal many times in their early literature. I think this, this desire to, to discover all that the brain is and does motivates some of the more ambitious projects that we have. And my goal in writing the book was just for as many people as possible to be inspired by his life and work. He's a legend in neuroscience. I've met different people with tattoos of his drawings on their bodies. But outside of neuroscience, his name isn't as well known as some of his contemporaries, you know, Darwin and Pester and some people who with whom he belongs in terms of the pantheon of science. I think you're exactly right. And and I also hope that um, with this kind of new interest in the way that art can inform science, and how scientists often have an artistic side, um, as opposed to the two being in opposition. I, I think that that's a, a recent phenomenon that is growing in in terms of its influence. And so I kind of want to end with a quote um, that you attribute to Cajal at the very beginning of the prologue that has stuck with me, where he says that only true artists are attracted to science. I just think that's so awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's kind of like, I see it as a kind of like ultimate um, rebuttal to his father's worldview. You know, like his, his father was, was concerned with science and studied and, and did his own uh, research of anatomy. But because he wasn't an artist, he, it was somehow illegitimate. Right. He ended up being a practitioner rather than a scientist, someone who... Right. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that quote too. Because again, what is what is a true artist? I, I don't know what a true artist is, but I know that he was one. I mean, of course, there are many throughout throughout history. There are tons and tons and tons of them. But he really belongs. His legacy is as an artist as well as a scientist. And I I was happy to see that some museums were displaying his drawings recently. And I hope that they can be treated as artistic objects or aesthetic objects as well as scientific evidence. Well, this book is clearly uh, represents a huge body of work for you. Um, And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the process of gathering information for the book. What was that like? You know, what what did you do? And maybe did it help with your own um, mental health struggles? Well, I was very taken by the realization that the brain is beautiful. I was very mad at my brain for producing 
states that were painful for for my i thought the brain was the the origin of my suffering but kahal's drawings showed that it was beautiful and intricate and complex and fragile and beautiful for me the, like the research this was my been my whole life for a number of years it's very intimate biography is and you come to know your subject so well that they feel like they're it, it was like in many ways my primary relationship of, of my life which is odd because it's a dead person. So you have to kind of consider the gap between his life and, and mine. But nevertheless, I, I wanted to stay as close to him as possible. And so, you know, picking out bits of color and drama from, from the anecdotal research just helped, I hope, helped bring him to life so that other people can forge a similar kind of relationship with him. Because like everyone that we love in our lives, I, I, want, I want people to see how wonderful he is. Yeah, and and you do that brilliant in the book. It really does read like a novel, uh, you know, in terms oh, great. of the, the, the storytelling. Yeah, no, it's really compelling. I mean, it's it's like yeah, it's like sitting down with one of the great Spanish writers, <laughs> and you know, reading this story. And at the same time, one other th- thing that I think is really important about the contribution that this book makes is that it reminds us that looking to the past is often just a very fruitful and productive thing to do because. I think now there's just this tendency, like I even have, you know, students that I teach at, at the university, you know, who ask me, um, you know, I found this one uh, scientific paper, but it was published 10 years ago. Like, can I use it? Is it still relevant or is it too old? Uh-huh. <laughs> just like, uh, yeah, you could use it. I mean, if, even if it's 110 years ago or 210 years ago, if it's a good paper, it's a good paper. In fact, you know, you shouldn't look at the more recent incarnations because they're probably not as good. And it like negates this historical perspective. So I hope that, you know, some of some of these students and, and, and people will read your book and just come back to this idea that the newest or the latest discovery is not always the one that is most relevant. Very true and well said. <laughs> Benjamin Ehrlich, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rayhalla, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode is edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Andre Viscontis. See you next time. 